0: So, friends, we are continuing today in our mini series through the book of Revelation. Again, we're not doing the whole book, we're just going to be doing chapters two and three, where God, through the Apostle John, explicitly addresses seven different churches that existed around the island called Patmos, which was the island that the Apostle John happened to be exiled to at the end of his life for being faithful to the gospel. Okay, so this is his address to the seven churches around that island. Two weeks ago, when we started the series, we saw how God addressed the first church, which is the church in Ephesus, right? Last week we saw God address the second church, which is the church in Smyrna, okay? And today we're gonna see how God addresses the third church, which is a church in this place called Pergamum. And what's interesting, I think, about this third church in Pergamum, is that it can actually be contrasted with the first church God addressed, which is the church in Ephesus. Why? Because in a sense, the first church in Ephesus and the third church in Pergamum are polar opposites. If you remember, the first church in Ephesus, they were rebuked by God because they had good, robust theology, they had really good doctrine, but they were also cold and loveless toward people, right? They didn't care about the people around them. Now, this third church in Pergamum, they're being rebuked for having bad heretical doctrine. Why? Because they care too much about what the people around them thought of them. So Ephesus, the first church, was doctrinal but cold to the world. Pergamum, the third church, was syncretistic, meaning that they synced themselves with the world to where their doctrines and their practices kind of was no longer Christian, right? They were syncretistic, but they were welcoming to the world. And here's why I think this is interesting is because I feel like this is also kind of the tension that a lot of people feel here in Indonesia as they look at the church scene that exists here today. At least that's my experience. When I ask churchgoers or Christians in Indonesia about their process of how they choose a church to settle as a member in, most of the time, and I'm curious if if you kind of feel this way too, most of the time, I hear this dilemma in their answer because they say, man, it's, it's so hard. The options I have are between doctrinally robust yet cold, loveless churches like the Ephesian church which they usually associate with a particular denomination, which we will not name, or on the other hand, they say we have doctrinally weak syncretistic churches, but are very accepting and warm and welcoming, which they also often associate with another denomination, which we too will not name. And here's the thing. A lot of people respond to them and say this, well, it's easy. Just find a church that's in the middle, right? But that answer won't satisfy the serious church member. You know why? Because the serious church member will know that being in the middle is the worst. Because that means you're being half doctrinally cold and half syncretistically warm. You don't want that. The goal isn't to be half doctrinally cold and half syncretistically warm. The goal is to be both doctrinal and warm. But that's a different sermon for a different time. Neither here nor there. Okay? But for us, CCC, God already asked us to be self-critical about whether or not there are Ephesian-like doctrinal coldness in our church two weeks ago when we talked about the church in Ephesus. And I think what God's asking us to do today in this passage is to flip the coin and to see whether or not there are syncretistic, Pergamum-like tendencies in our church as well. Okay? So let's, let's be critical on that side. Let, let's get into it. This is God's word. Take it from Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except except the one who receives it. Thus says the Lord. Okay. How can we, CCC, pinpoint syncretism in our church family, and if we see it, how can we deal with it and lastly, why should we care? Or, let me put it this way. Point one, Satan's way of loosening our grip. Point two, how to address weakened arms. And point three, the name we'll hold on to at the end. Okay? So let's go to the first point Satan's way of loosening our grip. So it's important to note here that before God rebukes the church in Pergamum, he first encourages them. Look at verse 13. He said, I know where you live, and it's not an easy place to live in. It's where Satan's throne is, God says. It's like, that's pretty intense. <laughs> you know, was Pergamum that bad of a place? But, but uh, John here wasn't talking about crime rates. He was talking about the amount of false worship that was happening in that area. Pergamum was actually the city where they first built the temple that started worshiping Caesar Augustus as God, okay? Emperor worship, which at this point has become a nationwide religion, but that was like the epicenter. That's where it all started. And then on top of that, they had other big temples as well. They worship false gods like Zeus, Athene, Demeter, Dionysus, and and, and tons of other false gods. And Paul is saying here that all this false worship, that's evidence of Satan's strong presence. And if you happen to be living in a Pergamum at the time, and you refuse to worship any of these false gods, you'd be cut off from society. You'd be excluded from trade and commerce deals. Your business will suffer. Your family will be harassed. To the point where, uh, John says, one of the church members in Pergamum named Antipas, in verse 13, he was killed for refusing to worship these false gods. But yet, God said in verse 13, even despite all of this intense persecution, you held fast to my name, you didn't let go, and you did not deny my faith. It's encouraging, so apparently, Satan's method of directly pushing back the church In Pergamum, from the front lines, it didn't work. But God tells us here that another method worked. What method? Look at verse 14. God said, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So first let me explain that eating food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, that's not just a list of bad things. That's a reference to idol worship, okay? Because those are the two things that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in Revelation chapter 3 is, is said to be involved in these pagan worship festivals, okay? They would feast and they would conduct sexual immoral acts, during the worship service. So, so apparently, whatever method Satan switched to here worked. It got people in the church of Pergamum to, to commit false worship. But what did he do? What was his method? How did he get the church in Pergamum to finally give in? Well, John specifies here in verse 14 that whatever strategy Satan used in Pergamum It was the same exact strategy he used against God's people in the Old Testament through two people named Balaam and Balak, right? That's what he says here. And if you're not familiar with the story, let me just summarize it real quick. So back in Numbers chapter 22 to 25, there is this scene where after Israel was freed out of Egypt, they got big, they grew numbers, And they settled for a moment near a land called Moab. So naturally, their cattle started to eat the grass around Moab. Their people set camp and consumed the natural resources surrounding Moab. And the king of Moab at the time, named Balak, got really worried that his resources are being eaten away. So he wanted Israel to disappear, to go away. So what Balak did is he went to this pagan priest named Balaam. And he told Balaam, "Look, Balaam, if you curse Israel for me, I'll give you a lot of money." But before Balaam was able to do that, God appeared to Balaam and said, "Don't you dare do it. Those are my people. Don't you curse them." So he did it. And for like two and a half chapters afterwards, Balak, the king of uh, um, the king of the Moab kept trying to convince Balaam to curse Israel, and Balaam kept saying, no, 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 over and over again. After a while, Balak gave up at the end of Numbers 24, and they went their separate way. But then, here's the twist. Out of nowhere, in the beginning of Numbers chapter 25, Balak, the king of Moab, got this idea. He said, you know what? If I can't directly curse Israel out of Moab, you know what I'm going to do? I'll just turn them into Moabites. Moabites. Great idea, genius. So what he did was he sent Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel. And after they were all ameshed, Numbers 25, verse two to three says that the Moabites invited the Israelites to sacrifice to their gods. And the Israelites ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Balak's strategy worked, but we're not done yet. It's another twist. It's a twisty story. Do you want to know who gave Balak this idea to seduce Israel from the side instead of attacking them directly from the front? It was Balaam. Hold on, I thought he was a good guy. I know, I did too. I was fooled. Apparently, he wasn't. How do you know it was Balaam? Because later in Numbers chapter 31, Balaam was punished alongside Balak for seducing Israel toward other worship. And that's why in verse 14 of our passage today, it says that it was Balaam, who taught Balak to put this stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So, let me summarize. Apparently, at some point between the end of Numbers chapter 24 and the beginning of Numbers chapter 25, Balaam secretly came back to Balak and told him, look, if I curse Israel directly, their God's going to punish me and you and all of us. It won't work. Here's what you've got to do instead. You've got to lure and seduce them with worldly pleasure, make them worship Moabite gods, and that way, either their god destroys them or they become a Moabite without neither of us being liable for it. See, win-win, now give me my money. Friends, Satan doesn't always loosen our hold of Christ head on with the sharp edges of a sword. More often than not, it's slowly with the soft lures of worldly pleasure. And don't get me wrong, Satan does use direct persecution a lot, even for people here in CCC. But for the most part, at least in my experience here in CCC, I don't feel like direct, explicit persecution has been Satan's main method of choice with us here so far, has it? I think he knows that if he does that, we're just going to double down and hold stronger to Christ. I think he knows a better method to use for us would be to lure us to the world, not crush us with it. Why? Because look around. This room is filled with a lot of ambitious people who have very easy access to the things of the world. That's not a brag, that's a warning. For many of you, the world's out there for the taking. You have the means, you have the connections, you have the resources, you have the education, you have the swag. You've got it all, which is fine and good. But just beware, that makes you the perfect target for Balaam's method. And as we just saw, Satan's been perfecting that particular method for centuries now. Like Balaam, he'll start by caressing your God-given desires. Then he'll make you doubt that the manna or the provision God's given you for today is enough and is sufficient, which is, by the way, why I think John refers to manna in verse 17. And if you believe that, it'll be really easy to convince you that the only way you can fulfill these longings is not by trusting God, but it's by doing things your own way, even if that means breaking God's commands. Step three. And if you get there, you know what usually happens, You don't leave Christianity completely. No, no, no. You stick around the church. And I think this is part of Satan's strategy. You stick around the church and you become like the Nicolaitans here in verse 16. That's why they're mentioned. The Nicolaitans were a heretical sect of Christianity at the time. And they claimed to be Christian, but wasn't at all. Because all of God's doctrines in that church has been butchered and tailored to support their desire of fulfilling their longings in the way that they deem best. And if we don't deal with that, CCC, before we know it, the only difference that our church will have with the world is that we're using God's word to support our carnal desires. And that's it. And at that point, we've been balaam We've been balaam So what do we do, CCC, if we notice or sense seeds of Balaam in our church? Okay, let's go, let's go to our second point. Move on to verse 16. God says, therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So, the first thing we see here about how to respond to seeds of Balaam, seeds of syncretism in our church, is to first appreciate the gravity of the situation. God said that if you don't repent, I will come to you soon. How personal this threat is should make us shiver. Not a messenger will come to you soon, not legions of army angels will come to you soon. It's much worse. I will come to you soon, God says. And what will God bring? We'll go back to verse 12. How did John introduce God here first in verse 12? He said, these are the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. What does this mean? This means that God's justice is consistent. See, we often think God's sword or God's justice is to be pointed only to idol worshipers out there. God's saying, no, 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 no. It's pointed at idol worshipers everywhere, even in the church. It's two-edged. By the way, we see this happen in Numbers chapter 25 as well. So, you know, rewind back to the Balaam story in Numbers 25. After Israel fell into Baal worship, you know what God did? He sent a plague to Israel. And 24,000 Israelites died, Numbers chapter 25 says, a plague, a plague. You remember once the last time God sent a plague somewhere? It was to who? It was to Egypt. God dealt with the Israelites in the same way he dealt with the Egyptians. Listen, just because we're worshiping health, wealth, and prosperity in the church, it doesn't make us any safer from God's wrath compared to if we were worshiping health, wealth, and prosperity outside of the church. These aren't magical walls. It's not about where you worship. It's about what you worship. Who you worship. So when the seeds of Balaam inside, you see it inside the church, the first thing we do is to realize that these walls aren't magical walls. It's not about where we worship, it's what we worship, and that God's justice is consistent, and that should heighten the reverence we have about this issue. But a second thing we should realize is that God's justice is also accurate. It's not only consistent, it's accurate. Where do we see that? Look at the end of verse 16. God was very specific about who he'll come for. If you don't repent, God says, I will come to you soon and war against Them, with the sword of my mouth. God didn't say He'll war against everyone in the church with the sword of His mouth, but specifically who? Them. Who's them? We'll go back to verse 14. It's the people who hold the teaching of Balaam. So, the Indonesian phrase here would be "jangan pukul rata." You know what I mean? Don't use the same hammer, the same sized hammer, with every single person when you see people in the church who has syncretistic tendencies, who, who want to mesh God's truth with the world, twisting God's word to justify their own desires and flesh, don't just go, all of you be damned. That's not God's justice. That's lazy justice. Not everyone's equally liable. And again, we also see the same pattern of justice occur in Numbers chapter 25 as well. After God sent the plague to Israel, God told Moses, Look, unless you punish all the chiefs of the people that led Israel toward the syncretism, this plague won't go away. God was very specific there as well about who to punish. Not everyone, but the chiefs of the people who were leading this movement. Yes, I'm not excusing people from their personal responsibility to God. 24,000 people still died in Numbers chapter 25. But there are those that are particularly responsible and they were the chiefs of the people. Look, we all care about doctrine here, okay? This is a reformed church. We don't like syncretism. But some people in the church, you gotta understand, they might have syncretistic tendencies because perhaps they've grown up in a Christian home where their parents took them to these kinds of churches throughout their childhood. And what's a young kid gonna do? You know, is he going to tell his parents, hey, stop worshiping health, wealth, and prosperity so that you don't confuse my idea of Christianity and produce habits of idol worship in my own Christian walk when I grow up? No kid's going to say that. Have compassion. Be accurate with how you apply God's justice, okay? For some, this might be all they've been conditioned to know. But other people, on the other hand, might be the ones doing the manipulating. They might be the ones purposely twisting God's word and fooling his children, prostituting the church, if you could say, for their own gain. Be accurate, not lazy, in how you apply God's justice, okay? And be afraid of God's justice. Intense stuff, I know. But number three. I think there's another thing that we need to look at, and it's actually not particularly in our passage today, but we get this uh, back from the Balaam-Balak story, in Numbers chapter 25, and I don't usually take applications from another passage to apply it to another passage, because that's not accurate, but because our passage today so intimately entangles itself with the events in Numbers chapter 25, I think for this one it's appropriate, okay? For us to take a look at how Israel repented back then in the Balaam episode, this is the third thing about how to respond to syncretism in the church. So let's take a closer look at it. Something happened before Moses was able to punish all the chiefs of the people, which would have been hundreds of people, at least, by the way. Something happened. A man named Phineas, Aaron's grandson, who was one of the priests back then, if you know. Um, he was also an Israelite priest. Said this, led by a jealousy for God, that's key, and Numbers chapter 25, led by jealousy for God, he stood up and he pierced through two people with a spear, two people who seemed like they could have been some of the main perpetrators of the syncretistic idol worship movement. And after Phineas did that, this is what God said in Numbers chapter 25, verse 10 to 13. He said, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. In that, he was jealous with my jealousy among them so say so that i did not consume the people of israel in my jealousy therefore say i be, behold i give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his god and made atonement for the people of israel so the piercing of these two people apparently satisfied god's wrath and made him relent from his original command to where he withheld killing all the chiefs of the people and, he, and the plague stopped. And I actually think this is the application of our passage today. The application of revelations in our passage today is to be like Phineas. Be like Phineas. What do you mean, Tez? We gotta pierce through syncretistic Christians with a spear? No, no. We gotta be jealous with a jealousy for God. That's what Numbers 25 said motivated Phineas. What does it mean, friends, to be jealous with the jealousy for God? It means that the reason we would do any of this, the reason why we would point out heresies and syncretism in the church is because we want God to receive the affection and the love that he should be getting from his people, It means that the reason we painstakingly keep the purity of doctrine in the church is because in the depths of our bones, it pains us to see God get cheated on. That's why. Not because, for example, we just like the drama. You know, Pastor so-and-so said this in a sermon three Sundays ago. (gasps) What? Yeah, I know, right? Kind of... It's so juicy to talk about stuff like that, isn't it? Don't do it because of that. Or don't do it because you just want to feel better about ourselves. You know, or it makes us feel more theologically superior than other people. No. If you do it for those reasons, the execution will be all over the place. Do it because it pains us to see the love and the glory that our God should be receiving get robbed by false idols. If you're not like Phineas, if you're not jealous with the jealousy for God, one, you won't care that much about executing God's justice. And two, you definitely won't be accurate in how you apply it. Because now you're doing it for all kinds of other reasons and you may end up hurting the situation more than you help. Okay? So if you're going to do it, Be like Phineas. Do it because you have a jealousy for God. So now, the question is, how can I be like Phineas? How can I develop in my heart a kind of jealousy for God that makes me do what he did? Let's go to our last point. The name that we'll hold on to in the end. Okay, so God ends this whole passage to the church in Pergamum, in the same way that he did with the other churches, with the promise. He said this, look at verse uh, 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that uh, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Tons of confusing imageries, what's this all about? Let's talk about it. It's all about Jesus. First, this hidden manna, what's that about? Well, remember, manna was this bread provision that God would periodically give to feed Israel in the Old Testament as they journeyed in the desert towards the promised land, okay? That's the manna that would come down from heaven. And if you go to John chapter six, do you remember what the apostle John said about who Jesus is? He's what? He's the bread of life that came down from heaven. He is our true manna. He is the true provision of the Lord. Okay? But what's this white stone about? Well, this white stone is just another way to describe this manna. If you remember the Old Testament, this manna is often described as round and white, like a white stone. Okay? So it's two of the same things. So what God's saying here is this. He's saying, I promise. I promise you'll be provided for. Although right now, it doesn't feel like that. Right now, maybe for some of you in this room, that sense of provision feels hidden. It's hidden manner, you see. Right now, when you stick to the truths of God's word, right now, when you align yourself to God's truths, it may cause the world to take away from you the provision that you need to survive. Obedience to God might make you lose money, status and perhaps the most painful of all, relationships. And there will be times where your wonder, truly wonder, down to your bones whether or not I love you, God's saying here, whether or not I care. And in those moments, you'll be very tempted to take matters into your own hands and sink my truths with the world in order to minimize your losses. Don't. Don't. For those who conquer, you will see that the tears you shed now won't be comparable to the glory that is to come. Why? Because when the day of glory comes, you'll find yourself associating with he who owns all things, the risen Christ. Which is what the new name here is talking about. It's association with the risen Christ. When you receive this white, stone-like manna, God says, there will be a new name written on it. And this isn't a personal name, like, you know, if my name is now Tazar, later I'll be named Magnamolus or something cooler like that. (laughs) No. What name will be written on this white, stone-like manna? It's Jesus' name. And we know this because Revelation chapter 3 says, to the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God. And again, in Revelation chapter 22, we will see when we see Jesus' face, His name will be written in our foreheads. So, when the story ends, we will hold the name of Jesus in this white stone-like manna. And what God's saying here is that it will be worth it. Whatever possessions the world take from you now, whatever losses you experience now, Jesus will provide for that longing in the end, and whatever shame that this world inflicts upon you now, you will possess a name that is more honorable than all other names, and that is the name of Jesus. And we'll all be worth it. Hold on. Okay. I see how that promise motivates me to not give in to the world, but you know it really hasn't motivated my heart to be jealous with a jealousy for God's glory. Well, that's because you forget why, friends, you get to hold on to Jesus' name in the end. Why does the Bible say, you get to eventually have this privilege of holding tightly unto Jesus' name in the end. Why do you get to do that? It's because Jesus first held on tightly to your name on the cross. On the cross, Jesus said, Whatever debt is under Tazar's name, I will pay so that whatever credit is under my name, he gets to hold on to. You think the piercing of two sinners in Numbers chapter 25 is what soothed God's wrath? You think the piercing of two sinners in Numbers chapter 25 is what made God relent from his justice? No. You know what did? Let me read to Isaiah chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The only reason why you get to hold on to Jesus name when the story ends is because he held onto yours during its worst part. And if you have ears to hear the gospel that was just proclaimed then perhaps a jealousy for his name might begin to appear in your heart and you shall find yourself begin to say Should not the lamb who was slain receive the glory for which he suffered? That sentence is what will combat Satan's lie. That sentence is what Phineas heard. May it be on repeat in our hearts, friends, till the day we can fully partake in this hidden manna. Let's pray. Father, this world, and the prince of its heir, who is Satan, is very skilled in making your church and your people eat the fruit. He's very skilled. We were just born yesterday, he's been around for centuries. We do not have the sobriety, the strength, the purity of worship to combat his lies. We pray that as we see your gospel, your spirit will use its power to protect us and remind our hearts again to keep going, to hold fast, to not give in, yet be gracious and kind and warm at the same time. As we look and remember how the story ends, where we will be with you once again, associated with the King of Kings who suffered in our place. In his name and in his name alone we pray. Amen.